0: turn to 2nd Peter, 2nd Peter chapter 2, and uh, we make a little turn in the road today. Uh, this sounds a little loud or something. You okay with it? It's all right. Can you hear okay? 2nd uh, Peter chapter 2, is there something I'm doing wrong? 1, 2, 3, testing. It's all right. 1, 2, 3. 2nd uh, Peter chapter 2 really uh, presents a turn in the road. Peter in the first chapter has laid a very solid foundation for how we can make our calling and election sure and uh, how we are to listen to the word of God. And then he turns with this sort of bridge verse in verse one and leads into his major concern in the letter in chapters two and three, which is a false teaching that is taking place probably in Asia to which he's probably writing Uh, And we're going to see what that concern is and see how damaging it is. But in the first part of it, just three verses, he gives us an introduction to the whole idea of false teaching and how it is to be dealt with among us as Christians. So uh, this is a very important topic because time would not allow for us even to list the number of false teachings that the church has experienced since the time of Jesus Christ. It's just ongoing. Every year there seems to be a new one. There have been new ones even here in this past decade here in our own country. And um, so these first three verses are very important. We'll see why Christians take this so seriously as opposed maybe to other religions that may not take their heresies quite so seriously, but we take ours very seriously. And we'll, we'll look and see why. So in these three verses, we have a very important lesson for us. It's something that if you're a follower of Christ, something you want to be involved in, and not the heresies, but in reacting to the heresies in the proper way. So let's look at 2 Peter 2, verse 1. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. Okay, what we see in these first words in verse 1 is that until Jesus returns, heretical teachers will be in the church. Count on it. They will be there. First of all, they were present in the Old Testament epoch. And this is the first thing that Peter is saying. He says, after just speaking to us about uh, verse 19, how we have the word of the prophets made more certain. And you will do well to pay attention to it. And so on. And how prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, verse 21, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Having said those things about the nature of the Scriptures and about the obligation we have to listen to the Scriptures and obey them, he then says, but there were false prophets among the people. He's speaking about the Old Testament. He's tying into those previous verses. Yes, we have the Word of God made more certain. We have the Word of the prophets inspired by the Holy Spirit. But there were also in the Old Testament times uh, There were false prophets. Uh, Hold your finger there and turn back to Deuteronomy 13. And let's look at what Moses had to say about this, or what God had to say through Moses in Deuteronomy 13. This is page 273 in your Bibles. And here God says, If a prophet, verse 1, or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a miraculous sign or wonder. And if the sign or wonder of which he has spoken takes place and he says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. It is the Lord your God you must follow, and Him you must revere. Keep His commands and obey Him. Serve Him and hold fast to Him. Now, hang on there just a moment. You see what he's saying? That even if someone is given powers that seem to be magical or even miraculous, but he contradicts the written Word of God, don't listen to him. Now, on the other hand, we have the signs of the apostles and prophets. I'm sorry, the signs of the apostles. And Paul says himself in 2 Corinthians 13, these things mark out an apostle, that they're able to work signs and wonders. Moses is saying, even if they work signs and wonders and they contradict the Word of God, don't follow them. Keep reading verse 5. That prophet or dreamer must be put to death because he preached rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. He has tried to turn you from the way the Lord your God commanded you to follow. You must purge the evil from among you. If your very own brother or your son or daughter or the wife you love or your closest friend secretly entices you, saying, let us go and worship other gods, gods that neither you nor your fathers have known, gods of the people around you, whether near or far, from one end of the land to the other. Do not yield to him or listen to him. Show him no pity. Do not spare him or shield him. You must certainly put him to death. Your hand must be the first in putting him to death. And then the hands of all the people. stoning to death because he tried to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Then all Israel will hear and be afraid, and no one among you will do such an evil thing again. Wow. Uh, This is where we get the the stoning of heretics. It's in the Old Testament. When someone comes to you, even a very powerful, charismatic person, and seeks to entice you, uh, you do not listen to them, but rather you condemn them civilly uh, in the Old Testament. And if it's your own family member. Uh, this is the reason I've, I've said before, I think, and this is very speculative, but when Eve first came to Adam and suggested that he eat of the fruit of the knowledge, uh, fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam technically should have put her to death. Because she was suggesting high handed rebellion and treason against God. And God was, it was in, in the king's palace gardens this was taking place. So you can see how serious this is. A heresy by its very nature uh, is a rebellion against the living God personally. It is suggesting a substitute God. It is enticing His people to rebel against Him. It's very dangerous stuff. It's been around a long time. You see it in the Old Testament to begin with. Now, I have several verses suggested there. You can read the story of Micaiah in 1 Kings 22. Or if you go to Jeremiah uh, 28 and 29, for example with uh, jeremiah 29 that famous letter that jeremiah wrote to the exiles in babylon to tell them how to behave in babylon remember he said seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which i've taken you so he tells the jews who are in captivity in babylon settle down build houses plant gardens give your sons and daughters into marriage don't give me any of this stuff about you don't want to have children because judgment's coming and it's a terrible horrible time and And you don't want to bring children into this world. You have kids in Babylon. He's telling them to get established and and prosper. And then to pray for and seek the peace, the welfare, the advancement of Babylon. So if you're in Memphis, the letter to us is settle down, build houses, give your sons and daughters in marriage. Seek the welfare and prosperity of Memphis, Tennessee. And just because people don't agree with your faith doesn't mean that you're praying against them. You're praying for them. Now that was the letter that came from Jeremiah. But later on in Jeremiah 29, you see that he then turns his, his guns and points them toward the false prophets. And he says, some of those are telling you, don't worry about it. God's going to bring you right back. That is, act as though Babylon's going to hell in a handbasket. Don't worry about Babylon. You're going to get back to Jerusalem soon. He says, don't listen to those people. You're going to be there 70 years. So settle down, build your houses. Those are false prophets. They're just trying to make you feel good. And they're trying to entice you. And so you'll find that in the prophecies in the Old Testament, oftentimes they were working against the false prophets. You certainly pick this up in the Micah 3 text, if you remember when we were studying the Minor Prophets. And uh, in fact, let's let's look at Micah three because that, that's kind of a short text that, in some ways, uh, summarizes. This would be page fourteen uh, seventy one. And uh, here, the leaders and the prophets are rebuked in chapter three. He speaks to the leaders in verse one, and then look at verse five. This is Micah three five, page fourteen seventy one. As for the prophets. "...who lead My people astray. If one feeds them, they proclaim peace. If he does not, they prepare to wage war against him." So, He's basically saying they're in it for the money. If you'll take care of them, give them a nice house, put food on the table, they'll preach things to you that will please you, make you happy. If you don't, they're a holy terror. They'll give you their their worst fundamentalist sermons. There will be hellfire and brimstone on you if you don't feed them. Uh, Therefore, night will come over you without visions and darkness without divination. The sun will set for the prophets and the day will go dark for them. The seers will be ashamed and the diviners disgraced. They will all cover their faces because there is no answer from God. In other words, God is saying, this is the way you're treating my word. You're using it for your own advantage or disadvantage. So I'm just going to stop giving you dreams and visions. You won't hear from me anymore. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. This is, of course, Micah speaking. He's saying in the midst of all these false prophets, I'm going to be a true prophet. That's exactly what you have to say. In the midst of all the false prophets around, I'm going to be a true prophet. This This is where Micah is rising up and saying, but as for me, And so each one of us has to say, but as for me, hear this, you leaders of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel who despise justice and distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for a price. And her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they lean upon the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. Peace, peace when there is no peace, as Jeremiah said. So the prophets from the Old Testament times were continually challenged by heretics. Men who were claiming to have visions from God. Men who claimed to be foretelling the truth and forth the truth but who were simply telling lies in the name of God. They were present in the Old Testament epoch. Secondly, they were present in the early church. He says in this verse, Just as there will be false teachers among you. Now, some have asked why the future tense here. I think he's just simply saying that this was prophesied. So just as there were false prophets in the old, it was prophesied there will be False teachers in the new. And you pick this up in Matthew 24. We won't turn to it, but that's the Olivet Discourse. Jesus' great sermon on the end times. And you remember he says in that sermon, there will be those who will teach untruth. Acts chapter 20. The Apostle Paul, remember when he's saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders. And he gives them that awesome challenge to shepherd the flock of God of which the Holy Spirit has made them overseers. He then explains why their business is so important. He says, Because savage wolves will come in among you. And they'll be dressed like lambs. So, Paul was telling the Ephesian elders, Expect trouble in Ephesus. In your little town there on the coast of the Aegean. There are going to be problems. Paul indeed was a prophet. There were problems there. Uh, So, you find it in the New Testament, and let's, let's turn back just a few pages to First Timothy uh, chapter 4 uh, and see what the Apostle Paul says toward the end of his life to his son Timothy. This will be page 1957. The Spirit clearly says, First Timothy four, 1 Timothy 4.1, the Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits And things taught by demons, such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Now, in this case, he's talking about their uh, moralisms and asceticisms. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with Thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God in prayer. If you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good minister, a good servant, literally, of Christ Jesus. Brought up in the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives tales. Rather, train yourselves to be godly so on. He's saying you will be a faithful servant of God and of the Word if you will point these things out to your brothers. So it's not just taking care of your own mind and your own theology. It's also taking care of each other. We'll see why this is so important as we carry on here. Let's look at Second Timothy. Just turn over a few pages. Chapter 3. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have, have nothing to do with them. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. Just as Janice and Jambres oppose Moses, so also these men oppose the truth, men of depraved minds, who as far as the faith is concerned are rejected. They will not get very far because as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. Turn the page to... uh, 2 Timothy 4. In the presence of God, verse 1, and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead and in view of His appearing and His kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires... They will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations and so on. Do the work of the evangelist. So you see what's being described in the scriptures is that there will be men who for a variety of selfish reasons will be proclaiming falsehood that is in direct contradiction to the revealed Word of God, and at the same time, there will be many people whose ears itch to hear something they want to hear. This suits their preconceived ideas of what they want the truth to be. Uh, Some of you were in in our church a couple of Sundays ago when Todd Erickson was talking about, when he was talking to his little daughter who was then two years old, about Easter. And uh, he said... Now, what's Easter about? And she said, Easter bunnies. And he explained the resurrection to this two-year-old. And after he got through with his grand theological explanation, she looked at him and said, but I want it to be about bunnies. (laughs) And that's the way Todd was saying. That's the way our ears are. We want it to be about what we want it to be about. And that's exactly what is being described in the Scriptures. So these heretical teachers were present in the Old Testament, they're present in the early church, and they're present today. Uh, and I've just listed here on your sheet some of the things that just popped into my head. I just wrote these down in in about three minutes. Things that I, I think about as problems in our own day. The Jesus Seminar, which takes the rights to go through the New Testament and excise verses that they don't think were original for whatever reasons they want to think. And who suggests there is no bodily historical resurrection, but it's a metaphor Uh, that simply speaks of new life kind of like the spring and Easter bunnies. That's really kind of what it is. It's an Easter bunny religion. Uh, You have the open theology, which suggests that God has not not predestined. He has not foreordained. He He doesn't control the future. He basically reacts to the future. He's open, which of course... It undermines the sovereignty of God. Emergent theology, which in some of its forms is simply an embracing of postmodernism. That truth is always culturally shaped. Truth is always simply an expression of one's experience. Not of anything absolute beyond us. And some emergent Christian theologies simply embrace that. You have a a book Written by one of these guys who says, "Well, I'm an Armenianist and Armenian, and I'm a Calvinist. Uh, I am, I'm a uh, a Jew and a Christian. I'm a this." And he takes he takes polar opposites and says, "I'm both," which is to say, you know, it really doesn't matter. Uh, and there's a lot of um, there's a lot of reaction these days, in, even in our seminaries to the whole idea of systematic theology. Because there's, a, there's an aversion to the idea that there's absolute truth that transcends cultures. And when you get into systematic theology, you're trying to take the teachings of the Bible and systematize them according to doctrines. You know, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of the church, doctrine of man and sin and so on. So you're taking philosophical categories and systematizing the teaching of the Scripture with respect to those categories. That's systematic theology. In fact, in the back of, your, of, of this Spirit of the Reformation Study Bible, you have several creeds. Those are all systematic theology. And there's a great aversion to that in the seminaries now, almost all seminaries, including evangelical seminaries. And, of course, systematic theology can be overdone. We can have our own categories that begin to tell us what the Bible means and it overrides even the Bible itself. And I know some Presbyterians who are far more interested in what the confession of faith says than they are in what the Bible actually says. And they'll hold the confession of faith to be absolute before they even consider the Bible to be absolute. That's a sin. Uh, so that's a problem. But then there are, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about those who generally allow systematic theology then to inform their ethics and their framework of thinking about the world. And there's a diminution of that concern in the seminaries now because, because of the emergent idea that we're everything at the same time. And we can't know absolute truth. New perspectives on Paul, which are raising questions about the substitutionary atonement. The new sexual ethic, which suggests really that anything goes. And there are very uh, strong teachings, theoretical teachings that support that. The new spirituality. Oprah Winfrey trying to say, well, you know, I, I'm a Christian and I'm, a, I'm I'm in favor of Deepak Chopra, Chopra and all the rest of them. Uh, it's kind of this intuitive religion that you find God inside yourself and there are Christian versions of it. Uh, the prosperity gospel, which says all you need to do is just believe and you can have materially anything you want. And they take certain verses and rip them out of context and teach you that you know if you really have faith, you will be prosperous materially in this life. Now, we believe we're going to be prosperous beyond belief in the life to come. And that God in His mercy sometimes gives us things uh, that made us even in this life. But we don't believe that those are necessarily signs of His blessings because sometimes those same material blessings, as they did in the nation of Israel, simply lead them astray. But one day we will be prosperous, but not in this day necessarily. Paul challenged this, of course, in 1 Corinthians. The self-esteem gospel, which we know all too well in this country, and we fill stadiums, stadiums of people with ears to hear about what great human beings they are and what their potential is as a sinful human being, even apart from the saving grace of Jesus Christ in the gospel. Gospel marketing, where we feel like the way to promote the gospel is to use just simply marketing techniques. Or gospel entertainment, where we've traded a place that is symbolized by the cross, which means the self-sacrifice of people who gather to die to themselves in order to live to Christ. We trade that in for come on and we'll make you happy and entertain you so that you'll want to come back next week. It's a subtle but a very horrible displacement of the gospel. Or gospel is business. This is what the Americans have done. We've taken the kingdom of God and turned it into a business. And we think that because of our great acumen as business people in this country that we can certainly just commodify the gospel and, and promote it around the world and it doesn't work that way. Our money will never buy evangelism nor success around the world. It's much, much deeper than that. And we have the neo-atheism. I didn't list that here, but the neo-atheism that you find on the bookshelves now uh, with so many people, Sam Harris and the others, that's basically a Christian heresy. Uh, You'll notice that atheism is really taught out of a Christian context. Uh, In other words, when when you have an atheist, you always have to ask, what God are you not believing in? And... uh, and it's the Christian God they're not believing in. So it, it is actually a reaction to Christianity. It's, it's, that's the reason they, those books are sold here uh, and will be much more popular here than they will be anywhere else. It's a Christian heresy. And then, of course, you have the heresy. I didn't list this one either, but one that's very common to us is easy believism. It, nominalism that simply by identifying or having your name on a church roll that you are somehow guaranteed heaven. Now, uh, these heresies, as we shall see in a few moments, are very dangerous. But let me just say something about each one of them, or about uh, all of them together, really. And that is that, that there's a good thing about heresies. Number one, heresies always presuppose the truth. That's the reason I say even atheism, in its form that's on the bookshelves here in America, presupposes the Christian truth. They're fighting against the Christian truth. So they always presuppose orthodoxy. Now orthodoxy is not always systematized and published before it's attacked. In the early church, we didn't have our we didn't have the Westminster Confession of Faith. We didn't have the Apostles' Creed. Uh, we didn't have the Nicene Creed. That came 400 years later. Uh, Nicaea, Nicene Creed uh, came in uh, 325, and then Ath- Athanasius and others, uh, or the Chalcedon uh, Council was uh, for. 51. So, look at that. Three or four centuries after the resurrection, you have these clear articulations of the person of Christ. But heresy was going on before then. But before heresy was going on, was the teaching of the apostles. So you had the Bible. That's what, So, and heresy always presupposes orthodoxy. The second thing that's helpful about heresy is, heresy usually leads to what we call conciliar orthodoxy. That is Orthodoxy is out of councils, whether it be the Westminster Assembly only 500 years ago or whether it be the Council of Nicaea 325 or the Council of Chalcedon 451. You have councils that are convened because uh, because of the heresy. And out of the council comes clear expressions of orthodoxy. And so we could say that really the development of historical Christian theology is in reaction to the heresies, which are in reaction to the apostolic tradition of the Scriptures. So heresy actually has helped us articulate our faith. And in every case, all these heresies I just mentioned are listed here for you. There are books on every one of them. We haven't necessarily had church councils on every one of them, but we've had orthodox responses to every one of them, which, in fact, then, helps us understand our faith better. It's not to justify in any way the evil of heresy. It's simply to say that in God's grace and kindness, He uses the evil in our world to bring about good in the church, ultimately. And you should expect that of God. That's what He does. He brings about good for His people, regardless of the circumstances, including the worst kind of evil even evil that is rebellion in his face. And so we have learned more of God as a result of the heresies. Let me give you an example. Sometimes people will say to me from other parts of the country, what's it like to be a Christian in the South? Because in the South, almost everybody says they're a a Christian because it's good for business. (laughs) As as, as he said to me, if, if... If someone asks you in New England, if you're a Christian, they'll say, hell no. If you ask someone in the South, they'll say, hell yes. (laughs) And my friends will ask me, how do you deal with that? You know, my friends in New England will say, it's it's so much easier here. You know, the sides are clearly chosen. You know where everybody stands? He says, you guys, he said, said, I've spent enough time down there to know you guys. It must be very confusing. I mean, you're sharing the gospel, and everybody's going, yeah, I know, yeah, huh, yeah, huh? sure, yeah, huh? And here's my response there's truth in what you're saying, but here's the deeper truth that is a heresy called easy believism or not church nominalism. It's not Christianity, it's churchianity. It's a heresy. Now, as is true with all heresies, including the massive Christological heresies that brought about the Council of Nicaea. In the Council of Chalcedon, uh, these, these heresies don't have a council yet, but what they require of thinking Christian men is that we have an answer for that heresy. In other words, it causes us to define the gospel more carefully so that you can make out the distinction between someone who not only says they're a Christian but someone who actually says they're a Christian and seems to be one. And you must make out the difference between those two things so it requires a more subtle distinction between belief and hypocrisy, which, if one goes through this exercise and takes his own culture seriously, will help him to understand the gospel better than he did before he moved here. You with me? And that is the blessing... That sometimes is deeply in disguise, from having to deal with whatever heresies you're dealing with. So, of course, we're going to see here in the text, we take a strong, corrective stance, even censuring and condemning heresies. But we never cease to trust that God is going to use that heresy to make us better followers of His, no matter what it is. So we will not fear the heresy. We'll fear God. We'll respond to it correctively. And in our corrective response, we'll find that we should become better men. So these heresies are present today. And fourthly, of course, they will be present tomorrow. And just use your imagination uh, as to what it might be next time around. What it usually is, uh, what it usually is, is something within the culture, in the secular culture, that is a dominant Cognitive, popular thought that seeks to co opt the gospel in some way. For example, I mentioned the emergent church. That there is this strong postmodern idea that really comes out of the English departments, if you will. It's really a literary heresy to begin with that says that the text itself does not necessarily have one meaning. The real meaning is how the readers are responding to the text. That's real sort of deconstructionism, postmodern deconstructionism taught in English departments today in some of the highest places. That mentality of not taking a text seriously now seeks to co-opt this text and say it really doesn't matter what the intention of the author was what matters is the experience of the reader. It's called reader response. And so you get in your small groups, and you just respond. And it really doesn't matter whether your intention is the same thing as the authorial intention. It just matters that you're having your experience that you can share with someone else who's having his experience. Now that's postmodern deconstruction of literature. And so that Stanley Fish, who was at Duke University, would say that 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 what I think about Shakespeare is more important than what Shakespeare thought about Shakespeare. Is that not absurd? Is that not arrogant? That's what it leads to is the worst kind of arrogance. And that sort of thinking, then it comes into the Bible and you can see what can happen. So that postmodernism says there's really no such thing as absolute truth. They're all culturally informed and culturally shaped. They're all attempts to exercise power. Back to Nietzsche. Might makes Right. And they're saying Nietzsche was right. That might is what is making right. And if you read Elaine Pagels, for example, at Princeton University on the Gnostic Gospels, she's trying to say that there are many, many Gospels. The ones you have, the four you have in your Bible, are just four of many, many choices. And they all have equal weight. And the only reason you have the four you have is because those who are in political power, namely Constantine and some who followed him, and those who are in power in the church... Those are the ones they liked. So the reason you have your four Gospels, it's a power play. Now, what you need to know about Elaine Padgels, she's a Gnostic. Therefore, she wants to promote the Gnostic Gospels, all these other Gospels that the church early on completely refused to include because they were obviously strange and foreign and contrary to God's Word in revealing Himself in the Scriptures. They intentionally rejected them on spiritual and theological grounds. But Elaine Pagels is a Gnostic, so she's making this play that our decision is just the result of politics. Everything now is political. It has nothing to do with absolute truth. It has to do with human political power. And that's where you balkanize the universe. Now, it's just your little village against my village. It's your word against my word. There is no truth that can actually bring unity to the nation, to the world, to the church, to your family, to your friendships, because it's every man for himself. And the Gnostic idea is that God is intuitively discerned. You find God within yourself. And Christianity is just one expression of it. But let's not impose it on everybody else who has their own intuitive idea of God. Now, that would be consistent with what I think Elaine Pagels believes, and so that she and the others are proposing that the absolute truth of the four Gospels, being the four inspired Gospels, is a power play. Has nothing to do with absolute truth. That is simply taking current day Gnosticism, which is related to postmodernism, and trying to co opt God, Christ, and the gospel with those cultural, philosophical ideas. That's where heresies normally come from. And isn't it good that one of the first heretics, in fact, the first heretics, Marcion and some others, what were they? Gnostics! They were Elaine Padgels before Elaine Pagels appeared. We've already answered her questions. And we're perfectly equipped if we'll just do our reading. The church has been through this before. And in the early centuries, including Irenaeus, who had to respond to In fact, he wrote a book called Against Heresies. He dealt with this kind of stuff. So we should be grateful that in God's providence, he pulls his church together to give answer to these things. So you can only imagine what's going to happen tomorrow. But it will probably be a result of dominant philosophical thought trying to tame the gospel and bring the Scriptures and Christ and God and theology and the gospel in conformity with whatever cultural ideas are in their own philosophical makeup. In other words, let's make it about Easter bunnies. Uh, That's what I want it to be. It seems true, good, and beautiful to me. That's the way I like it. Easter bunnies. Let's deal with that. Let's make that the, the whole thing. And that's what the culture will always do. Let's make it about us. Let's make it about what we believe. Let's take the Scriptures and tame them. And you see that in the Jesus seminar. We don't want Lord Jesus high and lifted up, ruling the universe. That's scary. Let's strip Him. So you can only imagine what you'll be dealing with next, but you have all you need for life and godliness. And... uh, You know, you have your fathers and mothers who have gone before you and have dealt with similar things and they've wrestled with these things and they leave you the corpus of their material that you can study for your own day. Now, that's the first thing. Until Jesus returns, heretical teachers will be here in the church. Secondly, heretical teachings are profoundly evil. First of all, they share some evil characteristics. And you see these in verse, uh, the second half of verse 1. They are devious in their manner. Peter says they will secretly introduce. And you find in 2 Timothy, he said how the, these heretics will worm their way in. And Paul speaks of similar sort of deceptions in Galatians chapter 2. Here is what Irenaeus said about the heresies of his day. This will be second century. Listen to how he talked about this deception that was in the heresies he was dealing with. He said... Error, indeed, is never set forth in its naked deformity, lest, being thus exposed, it should at once be detected. But it is craftily decked out in an attractive dress, so as by its outward form, to make it appear to the inexperienced more true than truth itself. Irenaeus says... Heresies don't come out with their naked truth and tell you like it is. They come out disguised so that they look more true than truth itself. And heresies are always made more powerful because there is some element of truth in every heresy. In fact, I could take every religion of the world and I could list a number of truths that are found in those religions that make them seem attractive to people. And they're based on real truths. Now, the truths themselves, is kind of hard to say because they, everything's connected. So whatever truth they have is usually some, in some way distorted. Uh, but nonetheless, there is some element of truth in every heresy. And the more truth that's there, the more powerful it is. The strongest, most powerful heresies are the ones that are just off about that much. They have this much truth. And with this much truth, they sell that much deformity. Those are the most powerful ones and the hardest ones to deal with for a number of reasons. Number one, you're thinking, look at all this good stuff over here. I mean, they're right. These are good people. They're well-intentioned. They're they're really trying to be part of us. And it's hard to justify calling this whole thing a heresy when only this part of it is over here. But you let it go. And what Irenaeus is saying, pretty soon it starts coming this way on you and pretty soon you you get naked truth. Now, the devil always overshoots himself. He always overdoes it, ends up shooting himself in the foot, and he'll get too naked. And pretty soon, it's really obvious that real rank evil is taking place here. But they are devious in their manner. They will secretly interview certain things. They won't go to the pastors and the elders in the church in Asia, They'll go to those who give them the first hearing and are very, have, have itching ears. They secretly introduce. They find the way to win their way in to the fellowship. And it's usually not through the teaching office uh, initially. It, it ends up there, but it's not initially there. Secondly, they propagate very serious error. He calls it here. They, they, they will secretly introduce destructive, destructive heresies. Now, here's the word heresies. Let's talk about it for just a minute. The word in Greek is hierasis, And I guess if you're spelling that in English, that would be H-A-E-R-E-S-I-S. H-A-E-R-E-S-I-S. That word Hierasis just means a party or you could say a sect. And in the first century, the word on its own actually was fairly innocent. You could say that So-and-so was of the sect of the Pharisees. Or in in Acts 5, you'll see that so-and-so belonged to the party of the Sadducees. The party or the sect. The high races of the Sadducees. So, it was not necessarily a negative word in the first century. It became one in the second century when the word was used commonly to speak of those who were in heretical groups. But in Galatians 5.20, when Paul speaks of the works of the flesh... He uses this word. So here's kind of your, your, one of your first glimpses as to the negative implications of the word. And the word that is translated in the IV is factions. So Paul talks about all kinds of works of the flesh. You know, sexual immorality and drunkenness and so on. And factions. High races. Parties. Sex. Factions. That are at war with the gospel. Now... What is a heresy then? It, it is a teaching that violates the clear essentials of the Bible. A teaching that violates the essentials. You say, well, now what are the essentials? Well, our essentials are the things which threaten the fundamental unity of the church and threaten the eternal salvation of those who believe. And, uh, for example, in our denomination, we actually have a document called The Essentials of the Faith. There are nine, nine doctrines. And in our denomination, we just tried to simplify it. It's not distinctively Presbyterian, but it is distinctively believing, evangelical. And it's helpful to know what these things are, because you could have someone who disagrees with you on church government or disagrees with you on who should be baptized and how, I don't think you'd call that a heresy. I mean, you could go so far, I suppose, in your doctrine of baptism that it would be heretical. But I would hope that Baptists and Presbyterians are not calling each other heretics because they disagree on on this important doctrine. And I think the reason we wouldn't call each other heretics is because we realize this, although it does kind of threaten the unity of the church, it doesn't threaten the eternal salvation of, of the believer. I think most Presbyterians and Baptists believe that, so we don't use the word heresy for that doctrine. But now, if you talk about whether Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation, now you're talking about heresy in the view of most Baptists and Presbyterians, or evangelical Presbyterians. So you can see how in some cases you would call it heresy, some cases you just call it doctrinal disagreement. And we'll find out when Peter the Presbyterian gives us the answer when we get to heaven. Just kidding. Just kidding. (laughs) Kind of. Uh, uh, But you see that, that it threatens the clear teachings of the Bible. It threatens the unity of the church. And basically you can see from the very meaning of the word, it has a social implication. It's not just truth. It's party, sect, group. So you see what heresy does? By its nature, it divides off. It creates parties. It creates division in the body of Christ. Now, Judaism and Islam also have heresies. Judaistic heresies, Islamic heresies. They are normally not quite so concerned about their heresies as Christians are about theirs. Why is that? Well, some scholars would say it's because in Christianity you have a mystical body called the church that is organically connected to the head, Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. So we are a mystical, spiritual body of Christ. And therefore, when you have false teachings that split off members of the body. It is an offense against the very Jesus that we adore and an offense against his spiritual body. Uh, And you will find, of course, a history of heresies in the church and the church's reaction to it. Some of it not always also good, but you can see that we certainly have taken our heretics seriously. Thirdly, These evil characteristics are are, uh, demonstrated in the way that they diminish Christ's glory, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. And you'll find with heresies that they consistently attack the person of God and the person of Christ. If you look at the earliest heresies, Marcion, I mentioned, believed that there were the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, and he really separated the testaments. That was very divisive. You'll find in the Christological controversies, there were debates about who Jesus was. Is he really God of God? Is he really fully a human being? How do those things work out? Is he in subordination to the Father? Is he less than the Father? Or is he co-equal with him? All these words that we use now came out of those early creeds responding to heresies. You see, the attack was always on Christ himself. The nature of heresy itself is to diminish the glory of God and often specifically to diminish the glory of Christ. For example, in the Jesus Seminar, is anyone who's in the Jesus Seminar or anyone influenced by the Jesus Seminar a better worshiper of Jesus Christ before, uh, after he got involved in the Jesus Seminar? No. The Jesus Seminar lowers and diminishes the glory of Christ. You'll find every heresy takes from the glory of Jesus Christ. Orthodoxy is right, ortho, right, doxy, praise. Orthodoxy leads to right right thinking, leads to right praising. Orthodoxy. And it exalts Christ and puts Him in His place. So you will see here what Peter is saying. It was true in the first century. They even deny the sovereign Lord who bought them, who laid down His life for them. They're diminishing His glory. Heresy always does that. Orthodoxy lifts Him up to the extreme. You can't get any higher. You can't lift Him any higher than Orthodoxy lifts Him. B, they bring evil consequences. These heretics will destroy themselves. They are bringing swift destruction on themselves. All we have to do is look at Deuteronomy 13 and that reality will come into play when Jesus comes back and reinstitutes the theocracy. The reason you put heretics to death in the Old Testament was you had a theocracy. Church and state were merged. They were coterminous. And therefore, it's right for the state to exercise the punishments for sins against the church because it's the same people and they're merged together. That's a theocracy. Since Jesus came and judged the failure of that theocracy and the destruction of Jerusalem, there has been no legitimate theocracy ever since. And our founders in this country realized that, thus the distinction between church and state. We won't separate them, but let's distinguish between them and have them not be muddled, have them interface with each other, interact with each other, but they're, separate, they're distinct institutions. And the reason for that is we don't have a theocracy. We don't put heretics to death, although we did. That was wrong because we don't have a theocracy. But when Christ returns, the theocracy returns. Churches stay are merged. And once again, they will find swift destruction on themselves. Secondly, they lead many astray. Many will follow their shameful ways. And this is why the church was so ferocious in attacking heresies and heretics because it was leading many astray. And this is the reason, gentlemen, that you have an obligation not only to keep your own mind and heart clear and orthodox but to help keep the minds and hearts of your brothers clear and orthodox when you go into your small groups with your discussion questions part of what's happening is you're challenging each other you're helping each other you're encouraging each other iron sharpens iron and we're kept out of heresy by one another God uses the fellowship to keep us pure because the tendency is itching ears Easter bunnies thirdly they discredit the way of truth they bring the truth into disrepute. And the word bring into disrepute is just the word for blasphemies. Blasphemio. They blaspheme the, the way of truth. Uh, so they bring God into disrepute. They bring the ethical way of Christian living into disrepute. And you'll find, of course, later on in chapter 2 that these heretics were also uh, living immoral lives, which always goes hand in glove with heresy. You can look at any of them. You'll find that the social relativism, the ethical relativism, is connected to a, the- a theological relativism. Then C, not only do they, do they share some evil characteristics and bring evil consequences, they share some evil motivations. Now, we saw this uh, in several texts already where... Greed is often at the beginning of their motivations. In their greed, they did certain things. Secondly, they exploit people. They use people. These teachers will exploit you. They'll exploit you for their own greedy purposes. They want a following. They want to be popular. They want to publish. They want you to buy their books. They want to be on TV. They want to be famous. Uh, They want their self esteem lifted at your expense. They exploit you uh, through their greed. And you'll find the same thing going on today uh, on our television programs. And they lie to you. They will exploit you with stories they have made up. And this, of course, is in response to those false teachers who said that the gospel itself was a myth. And Peter is saying, no, they're the ones who are making up stories. And just like the Gnostic gospels, if you happen to have read them, there is some truth in them, once again. That's what makes them plausible in some degree. But you'll find that there stories made up even about Jesus. In the Gospel of Thomas, uh, Jesus one day is working in the carpenter shop and uh, he uh, hurts his hand and he just works a miracle and his hand is healed. Just make up a story. Uh, Jesus uh, was dyeing socks and they came out different colors and he put them back and they came out the same color. Uh, these crazy myths and stories just to show that Jesus was a Gnostic himself. And that you can be one too. And they just make up stories uh, in order to get in your pocketbook in the first century, second century. Then lastly, we have three minutes here. In the latter half of verse 3, you'll see that heretical teachers will face God's judgment. The theocracy will return. Christ will be on His throne, not only uh, in heaven, but on earth. And the heavens and the earth will merge. And we will have one Lord who is exercising his dominion, not only spiritually, but physically. And at that time, everyone who diminishes his glory, everyone who spits in his face, everyone who distorts his word, his revealed announcement to his universe, will be judged. How so? First of all, they're already under condemnation. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them. Can you imagine the guilt complex of a person who knows they're in abject rebellion against God and his condemnation is resting on them? And secondly, his punishments. Their destruction has not been sleeping. That is, their destruction is being prepared for them even now. It's a very dangerous thing to be a leader of a faction who is railing against the truth of God. Now, uh, that is a fairly negative thing uh, as we looked at it. But you realize that in, in our walk with Christ, we have two motivations. One is and the dominant one is that we are so grateful to him for his grace to us. We are moved by gratitude to serve him. Second motivation is the one of reverence and fear. We we're awestruck by his being and his truth is his word. It is his voice, it is his being expressed in in his revelation to us. And therefore we must fear him and take seriously what he's given us. And so as men, we want to realize that Until Jesus comes back, we're going to be facing this. You have to equip yourself. You have to study the Word of God. Be equipped for what's around you and what's even in your own heart, the tendencies you have to create new heresies in your own heart. Uh, They're going to be with us. They're very dangerous. There will be destruction coming uh, against those who promote them. But realize this. God has given you all you need for life and godliness. He said that in chapter 1. He's given it to you. Just keep going back to Him, His Word, and His Spirit and ask Him to mold you and make you after His own will. I've never met a person, never, and I don't plan ever to meet one, who has the humility that God calls for, who will not ultimately find the truth sufficient for themselves. Heresy is always attached to evil in the heart. Always. If you will continually cultivate your heart, you'll find that is the way to defend yourself and others, against all the evil around us. Let us pray. Father, uh, we thank You for this teaching about heresy. It uh, it grabs us this morning because it is profound. It is an awesome warning to all of us. And we pray that You'll make us alive, especially to the truth, that will then make us alert to the factions that are about us. Make of us, O oh Lord, gentle and respectful representatives of the gospel, wherever we go. Help us to deal with our own hearts and then gently to deal with the lives of others. We ask that we may go now in the blessing of the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all.